Our passage this morning will be from the Gospel of Mark. If you would turn in the to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, we'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And if you would, if you would please uh, stand for the reading of the Word of God, out of reverence. John Mark records, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, what will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony for them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand, or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother now brother will be, now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us this hour to hear your word, Lord. I thank you that the uh, the word has been proclaimed this morning, Lord, that has gone forward. We know that it is quick and is powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart, Lord. We just ask this morning that you would um, allow that word to be imprinted upon those that hear, Lord. I pray that for those that believe that it will be a word of edification, Lord, a word of challenge, a word of commandment, Lord, that will guide us in the way that we are to go. For those that maybe hear my voice this morning that are outside of Christ today, I pray that they will hear these words and they'll be convicted of their sins, Lord. They will repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, recognizing that that is the means by which we are saved. Lord, we just ask that uh, you will be with our brother Damon this morning, Lord, as he delivers the message that it may be powerful that it may go forward, that it may be wholly according to your word, Lord, that as he speaks, he is guided by the Spirit, Lord, that what he says is what is needed to be said this morning, Lord, that all of it is from you. We recognize that you are the giver of all good things, Lord. And we pray that your message this morning is one that is good, that is holy, that is able to save souls, Lord. And we know by your power and your sovereign hand, it is able to do so. These things we ask in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. We return this morning back to the book of Mark. Um, as many of you will remember, we have been taking the book of Mark verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and thus we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter number 13 and verse number 1. I really hope that if you weren't here two weeks ago that you listened to the sermon from two weeks ago, um, particularly pertaining to this portion of Scripture. If not, you may be somewhat lost this morning as to and the direction that I'm taking. Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke chapter number 21 are 
probably some of the most popular portions of the Gospels, particularly Matthew chapter number 24 um, is, is probably the most prominent out of the three. And without a doubt is also one of the most controversial portions. Maybe not controversial in your own heart and mind, uh, but controversial throughout church history. Maybe not controversial to you because, or to me, because up to a point we thought about it particularly only one way. Um, the vast majority of evangelicalism and the church at large um, take a position on this passage that I'm not going to take this morning. And I think I mentioned that to you uh, two weeks ago as we tried to lay the foundation in the book of Matthew and really bring in the Old Testament and talk about Matthew as a whole and um, tried to see this growing hostility between Christ and the Jewish people, particularly those that are representatives of the nation of Israel. Um, and you see that growing hostility all the way up to Matthew chapter number 23, and it culminates in Matthew chapter number 24. And with this declaration that the temple would be destroyed. You may remember that the woes came in Matthew chapter number 23 after multiple parables were given. Seven woes or condemnations upon the nation of Israel were given. And it ended with that text that we read the last time. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. This is Matthew 23 verse 29. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed of the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing." See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is the heels from Matthew's context <clears throat> upon which our text in Mark chapter 13 is born. You now enter into what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, chapter 24 of Matthew says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? What things? The temple. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What things? I'm arguing the temple being destroyed. And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And we'll deal with that question later. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Mark 13 picks up there exactly in chapter 1, or chapter 13 and verse number 1, you read, Nathan read those words. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. 
talking about the temple. In Luke's gospel, he refers to the beauty of the temple. And then in verse 2, he says, And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What things? I'm arguing the, the, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That, these are the, that this is the prophecy that our Lord is prophesying of. Up until this phrase that is given to us in Mark 13 and verse number 30, um, or verse number um, 30, but also in Matthew chapter 4 and verse number 35, I believe it is, where he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And I'm going to argue that there's a time marker here that Jesus prophesies that this generation will be partakers of the prophecies that he gives prior to that. And there may be a change in question following, following that. That's going to be my argument. That the, this generation that is spoken of that we read in Matthew chapter 23, that the woes that your house will become to you desolate and these things will come upon this generation, he uses the exact same phrase one chapter later. And I'm arguing that this is the generation in which all of these things come to pass. And it happens in A.D. 70. Again, this is not the popular view. I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I am in a minority position. That the vast majority of evangelicalism and probably what you grew up with and what I grew up with and the churches that we were in um, was that this portion of Scripture is completely future. Um, to have a good balance and to possibly repent of, of my interpretation and change it. Um, as I was studying for this, I went to John MacArthur, a faithful man, um, and listened to the entire series that he did in, in his commentary, but also on Grace to You of Matthew chapter 24. He would take the position that most people take in the church today that this is entirely future. Um, he argues that in Matthew 24 and verse number two, that following that verse, this is all future to us. Um, that's the majority position um, today. And it's a faithful position and a biblical position that can be um, argued. That's not the position that I'm going to take today. Um, that would be the premillennial dispensational view, which many of you probably are. You may not know what all that means, but that's primarily what is taught in churches. And that's what I grew up in, spiritually speaking. It, it argues that the, that the entirety or most of it um, is completely future. And it rests primarily on the Jewish people during that seven-year tribulation period. So that's what you would see. You would see in the beginning, the verses that we're going to, to tackle this morning in verses um, particularly Mark 13, 3 through 13, or 5 through 13, um, would be that leading up to the Great Tribulation, and then there would be a transition into the Great Tribulation, um, and which would be followed by the second coming of Christ, which would be followed by a thousand-year millennial reign, um, which would end in rebellion, and then we would enter into the eternal state at the judgment. Um, during that millennial reign, Christ would literally rule and reign here on earth for a, a thousand years from the throne of David um, in the temple. And I'm using broad strokes. If that doesn't describe your position, um, don't get offended. The difficulty with this is, is that whenever we label a term like that, um, it gives broad general strokes. 
Um, it doesn't mean that every single person that um, holds to that particular view believes all of those exact things. That's the difficulty of this. Within each position, you're going to find a number of nuances um, that argue something a little bit different. Um, so let us not get offended if that doesn't exactly um, present your view. But there are other views. There have been other faithful interpretations throughout church history that men have taken um, that have been blessed by God and that we would consider to be orthodox or of the right opinion. Um, these are hard things. These are difficult things whenever we speak about the second coming of Christ, when we think about the things that, that gather around or surround the environment in which the end of all things happen. The difficulty of it is, is that oftentimes you don't understand fully or can't completely fathom um, the prophecies that are given until you experience them. There's the difficulty, right? Um, that many of the Old Testament prophecies that were prophesied of old by the prophets and, and it, uh, when they came to culmination in the New Covenant, or under the New Covenant, in the New Testament, oftentimes we get somewhat of a different picture of what the final and fullest fulfillment of them were. For example, you'll, you'll remember a prophecy um, in Malachi concerning the forerunner of Jesus Christ. There's a prophecy that's giving of Elijah. Uh, but when you come to the Gospels, you find out that it wasn't Elijah resurrected from the dead. Who was it? It was John the Baptist. Um, that the men were looking for Elijah in a literal form. But, but Christ um, interprets that and takes the prophecy and says that it was fulfilled in this man who came in the spirit of Elijah. Um, you see a similar um, uh, prophecy in Matthew chapter number 2 that we referenced last week where it was a prophecy pulled out of Hosea, I believe it was, chapter 11 and verse number 1. Um, that is applied to Christ under the new covenant. It says that, uh, that when they went, ran from Egypt, the mother and father, Mary and Joseph, and ran to Egypt with Jesus their son, um, it was fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. But whenever you go to uh, Hosea chapter number 11, that was a, the literal rendering of that and the historical fulfillment of that was in the nation of Israel. But when you come to the New Covenant, the New Testament, Matthew applies that in its greatest fulfillment to the person of Christ, that He is the true Israel in some sense, and that that fulfillment or the greater fulfillment, um, the, the, the former fulfillment was somewhat of a shadow and a type in history, and the greater fulfillment appears to be um, that Jesus Christ is the true Israel. And if you have contention with that, um, again, John MacArthur would agree with that, even though he would disagree on this, this text. That prophecy is extremely hard sometimes because in its, in its raw form, um, it doesn't always transfer a one-to-one -one parallel in its fulfillment. And oftentimes, it's even intensified and greater um, whenever it, it comes. That's the difficulty. So not only is there the uh, pre predominant view of um, all future, there's another view that is called the interadventual view. It takes Matthew 24, Mark 13, and, um, and Luke 21 and, and describes them in generality, speaking of what the term would suggest, the inner advent. They're the time between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ. They somewhat flatten it out and spiritualize it totally to say that these are generalizations that will, um, that will, that will uh, mark the entirety of the church age. So wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes... Um, persecutions, and there is a sense in which that's true. Um, that's not the position that I'm going um, to take. There's also something called the preterist view. And this is a fancy word that means past. This is the view that I'm going to take this morning. 
There's two types of preterists. There's a full preterist and a partial preterist. Again, it's just past. So I'm arguing that the prophecies that are given here this morning by Jesus Christ were future to those that heard it, but applied to a particular generation, and so, thus they are past to us. So they were fulfilled. And this is what a partial preterist would, would hold. It's orthodox. Men throughout the ages have believed this. Men today have as well. R.C. Sproul would be one who would argue this position. There's also another position called a full preterist position. Um, in which these people would believe that the entirety of the New Testament is completely fulfilled. That's not what I'm arguing this morning. I would argue that that is heretical. And if there's any position that I will fight you over, it'll be that one. You know, um, we, we all need to agree that Jesus Christ is coming, that there is a resurrection of the dead and a final judgment. Um, there's also a fourth view, and this may be a tenable view and may be something that I even lean toward myself. This would be a double fulfillment view. The argument would be that Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 all deal with the destruction of Jerusalem um, in 70 AD, but it also deals in double fulfillment that there is a farther fulfillment. And that very well may be true, that every time that we see the, 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 the phrase, the day of the Lord, particularly in the Old Testament, it does not always refer to the final day of the Lord. There are multiple days of the Lord, and I'll probably argue that at some point, but not today. Um, and that they are types or shadows of a greater day of the Lord, a final day of the Lord, um, of, of great judgment and great salvation at the end of the final age. Um, one commentator writes, the historical fulfillments may be types of a future fulfillment. The difficulty in interpreting this text is to know which is which. This means that neither historical nor they're neither historical or exclusively eschatological, meaning um, speaking of the end or future. Explanation is satisfactory, and we must allow for both. Just as we argued earlier with the Hosea text, there was a historical fulfillment, and there was a farther fulfillment in Christ. We see that also in places like Matt, or Psalm twenty-two. It speaks of where David argues and and speaks of of great persecutions that's come, but 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 then but then the apostles and Christ apply that text to Jesus, and he even um, and he even um, quotes portions of it as he's on the cross. That there is a near fulfillment and a farther fulfillment. It very well may be that there, that Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 um, have an, an eschatological perspective in mind. While it was primarily fulfilled in 70 AD, there is a, we should learn from that that there is a greater judgment. There is a greater salvation for um, Christianity in the new covenant, but there is a great judgment that is to come. And if you want to see a small, get a small taste of that, then you can go to um, the historical account of the prophecy fulfilled of Christ in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So what I'm attempting to do is over the next couple of weeks um, give you this portion of Scripture primarily, at least first, in regard to um, the coming destruction and those things that those events that precede the coming destruction of the nation of Israel. Why? Because they rejected the Christ and they murdered the prophets. Matthew chapter 23. That was it. That was that was the condemnation upon them. That throughout the centuries, every prophet or the prophets that they would send, they would stone to death. The Jews were guilty of the blood of the prophets. And that's why he says that they will fill up the cup or the, the, the measure of guilt upon them. 
And we, re- we learned the last time that they did that as they took upon themselves the blood of Jesus Christ. As Pilate washed his hands and said, this, this, I'm free of the blood of this man, um, the, the nation of Israel as a people, not only the representatives or the leaders said, we take his blood upon this, upon us. And they took the guilt and filled up the measure and then continued to carry that out um, throughout the book of Acts. That that's what I'm going to argue. That in verse number one, he leaves the temple. And as he leaves the temple, one of his disciples say to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now, I don't believe that they were doing, it wasn't a tourist um, type of showing. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus had seen the temple before. They're not taking a geographical location and working Him through it. Um, In Luke chapter 21, they, they, they refer to the beauty of the buildings. It's almost as if it's like this. They leave or they hear Christ's sermon and they hear him pronounce that the house of that their house is left to them desolate. What house? The house that he'd referred to in Matthew 23 before, and in Matthew 21, when he referred to it as a den of thieves, he was speaking about the temple. Um, and he and and no doubt they hear that your house will be left to you desolate, desolation, which gives somewhat of a reminiscent um, perspective from the book of. Leviticus chapter number 26 and Deuteronomy chapter number 28. And we looked at all of that. And I'm just trying to bring that back to the forefront of your minds if you weren't here two weeks ago or if you didn't listen to the sermon. And I would encourage you to go do that because we don't have time to give um, to all of that um, today. But it seems to me in verse number one of each of these passages that the disciples cannot fathom the idea of the temple being gone. No doubt in Jerusalem, I mean, I I don't know if we can fathom the idea of what it meant to the Jewish people for the temple to be destroyed. They ask multiple questions in different Gospels, and the reason I think that they do that, but I don't necessarily think that in their mind they're thinking of um, differing questions. So in Matthew's account, you see, what will be the sign of your coming as well as the end of the age, as well as when will these things be? They want to know when this thing is going to happen and what the sign of the end of the age. Um, It it seems to me that as they uh, live under an old covenant promises and with all the prophecies that that at the, that the, the end of the temple would have been the end of the time space continuum to them. After all, um, all of Judaism centered around the temple and the activity that um, was undergirded in by it and in it. And the temple, you'll remember, was the very dwelling place of God. I mean, it began prior to that with Moses and a tabernacle. I mean, it would be this unique place in which God would manifest His presence to His people. And as they, they, they wandered throughout the wilderness, it was God's provision for them to, to, to experience the manifest presence of God. Eventually, we would get to David, and David would have a desire to build a permanent place um, for God to dwell. God wouldn't allow him the privilege of building that because of the blood that was upon his hands because he was a warrior and the nations that he would slay. Um, But he did give his son Solomon the great privilege of building that temple according to the design of David that God had um, given him. And whenever you read of the the, the consummation of the temple, you read of one of the most glorious passages in all of the Old Testament, that the glory of God so dwelled and manifested its presence in that place that the priests that were there were pushed out of the temple. But also what you find in those covenant passages in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter number 28 
is that there are blessings that will come upon obedience and curses that will come upon disobedience. And one of those curses would be that their land would be left to them desolate. Um, and that's why Luke in chapter 21, verses 20 through 24 says, these are the days of vengeance, which is almost a direct quote from Luke chapter number, or uh, Leviticus chapter 26. that speaks of the vengeance that will come upon them in their disobedience. Um, and what ended up happening was that that temple was destroyed. Um, the, the, the nation of Israel was led into Babylonian and Assyrian captivity for 70 years. But upon their repentance, again, Leviticus chapter 26 promises that upon their repentance, they would be brought back into the land. That's exactly what happens. Under the um, rule of Zerubbabel, they build a second temple. Yeah, this second temple does not, um, does not away with the, the same amount of glory as the first. And we read that in the Old Testament. It doesn't match quite what Solomon's temple was. But at the same time, they were able to reinstitute sacrifices and worship God the way that He had prescribed under the Old Covenant. And literally, God in His mercy and grace dwelt with them. Um, the Old Testament ends, but prophecies come time and time again of their continued disobedience even after that age of what would happen. You could go to Jeremiah chapter number 7. You could go to Micah, I believe, chapter number 1 or 2. And you could read of, of Jeremiah preaching to them and proclaiming um, repentance upon them. Otherwise, um, the temple again would be left to them desolate. And uh, in some sense, you find that in the uh, in between Malachi and the New Testament, there's a 400-year period um, in which is, is particularly silent from the Word of God. Um, but when you read history, you, you read of a Maccabean revolt in which that temple was in some sense left to them desolate. Um, right before the New Testament times or that we know of in the New Testament, um, Herod, would begin to rebuild that temple and expand the temple grounds and make it um, as glorious as he thought that he possibly could. That's the temple in which we read of today. Um, yeah, that's the temple that we read of in today. And we can't begin to, I think, understand the extreme spiritual significance to them. Or maybe I could put it like this. Imagine today living without Christ. Imagine today having a life where you know I have to live the rest of my life without His presence. That would have been the significance of saying to the Jewish people, your house is left to you desolate. You remember that great portion of Scripture in the book of John chapter number 1? You read the Old Testament and you read of the glory that rested upon the temple and then you get to John chapter number 1 and he writes um, that, that, that Christ, uh, that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and we, he goes on later, he says, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that He's the very image of God, that He is the temple. And he even argued that in, in John chapter number 2, where He says, you know, you, you tear this, this thing down and in three days I'll build it back up. Um, he says later that He was speaking about Him, His body being the temple. You find later that He is the chief cornerstone and He's building it up even to this day that, that to them, um, to argue that the temple was gone, the very dwelling place of God where peace and forgiveness and reconciliation and sacrifices and atonement for sin was made, it would have been as if the world had ended to the Jewish people. And thus they stand with astonishment and say, you know, have you not seen the temple? Do you not see it? Not only in its grandeur of structure, not only in all of its wealth, but in what it symbolized of, of the dwelling place of, 
of God. And Jesus prophesies, whether you believe that the rest of it is pertaining to that or not, He prophesies that not one stone will be um, left upon another. He leaves the temple for the final time. And in some sense, I think that's even symbolic. You know, Matthew uses two words. It says that he, he left the temple and he went away. It was this, this, it's the same word almost in two different ways. It's this emphatic language that he's leaving and it's reminiscent of Ezekiel chapter number 10 and verse number 18. And in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse number 22, where it speaks about the glory resting upon the cherubim. And then, but then in chapter number 11, it says that that glory that rested upon the cherubim, it left the temple and it went and rested upon the mountain on the east, which would have been the Mount of Olives. And what you read in 1 Kings chapter number 6 is that when God abandons the temple, it means that He has abandoned His people. That's, that would have been the, the, the typology. That would have been the message that would have been received. 1 Kings chapter number 6, and I believe it's chapter number 12. That when God abandons the temple, the dwelling place, when His presence leaves, it is symbolic of Him and of leaving and abandoning the people of God. Why? Because they abandoned Him. That's what it says in a New Covenant language in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17. It says, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you to, from the countries where you have been scattered. In verse number 19, Then I'll give them one heart and will give them a new spirit within them and, and take the stony heart of the flesh out and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will walk in My statutes. Then he goes on in Ezekiel and says, But as for those whose hearts follow the desire of the detestable things and their abominations, I'll recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. And I might ask at that point, what detestable things are abominations? And we think of detestable things and abominations, and we think of all sorts of um, devices of Satan. You know what the Old Testament looked at as detestable and as abominations? Um utilizing the sanctuary in a way that God hadn't ordained. In Ezekiel, just a couple chapters earlier, in verse, uh, chapter 5 and verse 11, he says, Therefore as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. He goes on in Ezekiel 7.20 and says, As for the beauty of his ornaments, he said in majesty, but they made from it images of their abominations, their detestable things. Therefore I have made it like refuse to them. And he goes on and on. And after that passage that I just read in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 22, as he, as he declares judgment upon those who, who partake of the detestable things and abominations, he says, So the cherubim lifted up their wings as a result of that. Um, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. He left the temple. He left the dwelling place of God. His presence was gone. I'm arguing that that's what's happening here. Through their covenant disobedience, the sanctions that were given in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy chapter number 28, um, were performed in that generation. Jesus would have made this prophecy around 33 AD. A Jewish generation is roughly 40 years and approximately 37 years later, we read of one of the most um, gruesome accounts of, of battle and war in all of history um, up to that point. This prophecy was fulfilled. Um, this prophecy was fulfilled. Josephus writes in his account of the war of the Jews, he says, 
Now, as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any had there remained any such work to be done, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as were the greatest eminency. That is, this wall was spared in order to afford a camp for such as were lying in the garrison, as were the towers also spared. For all the rest of the wall, it was so thoroughly laid even to the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. If you, really, if you, if you read Leviticus chapter number 26, that is almost an exact quote of what God would do to those who broke covenant with Him. Um, people would come by and they would say, what was here as if nothing was. This, he goes on to say, this was the end which Jerusalem came by the madness of those that were, of for, were for innovations, a city otherwise of great magnificence and of a mighty fame among all mankind. He also says later, where, or before, whereas the war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all. This is what he says about the war. Whereas the war with the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of, both of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. And he's a Jew. He's not, he's not relying on Jesus' prophecy here. He is actually, he, he's resting upon old covenant promises. Um, he's not quoting Christ here. And, let, and at different points, he will actually say that this is God's um, wrath upon the, the, the nation of Israel because of their covenant disobedience. And this is a Jew who understood the Torah and the Old Covenant. Um, but this isn't something new to history either. Eusebius, who would have been alive around 250 AD, who was a Christian historian, wrote, Such was the reward of the iniquity of the Jews and of their impiety against the Christ of God. But it is worth appending to it the infallible forecast of our Savior in which he prophetically expounded these very things. If anyone compares the words of our Savior with the other narratives of the historians concerning the whole war, speaking of the war of the Jews, how can he avoid surprise and a confession of the truly divine and supernaturally wonderful character both of the foreknowledge and the foretelling of our Savior? Eusebius argues that Christ spoke of that. He goes on to say, For since they did not accept the Christ of God when He came, He left them and turned to all the Gentiles, telling the cause of His turning when He said with tears, as if almost apologizing, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets and stoneth them, which are now sent unto her, how often would I have gathered thy children together, but you would not. That The prophecy that Christ prophesied was for... I believe was fulfilled in 70 AD. What you find that as after Christ died and gave his life on Calvary and he ascended into heaven, what you're going to find is a proliferation of the events before us that culminate in 70 AD. The war began somewhere around 66 AD and it lasted approximately three and a half years. It began with Jewish insurrection because of um, the, 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 the state of Rome. There was a couple of instances in 66 AD and this, and what you find in the nation of Israel is just this growing hostility. Why? Because it was such a messianic age. And there's quotes here in just a few moments of, of Jewish theologians during that day and even now that argued that, that there was a particular time in, in Jewish history in which they were looking for the Messiah. 
and that it provoked them um, to, to, to cast off Rome in 66 AD as, as, as the nation of Israel was somewhat of a powder keg. Factions were growing within. Wars had begun among the Jews. And in 66 AD, in some sense, they were fed up with it. Um, a Greek, uh, a Greek group, of, a group of people came into one of the synagogues and desecrated it. Around the same time, there was a, a um, one of the Roman procurators just thought it was a good idea after that happened to take up um, uh, overdue taxes. And he went throughout and he took them out of the temple treasury. Um, some of the Jewish people began to mock him and he revolted um, against the Jews and slaying thousands of Jews which led to a revolt by the Jews in which they pushed Rome out, took back the nation or that, 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 that Jerusalem area, um, which began a three and a half war, a year war uh, with the Jews. What would happen is, is that Rome would come back in under, um, under the authority of Nero, led by a man by the name of Vespasian with his son Titus, who was a general, and they would begin to seize um, city after city and town after town surrounding Jerusalem. They would begin in Galilee, Galilee and run through Judea, killing thousands and thousands. Um, at the end of the entirety of the war, it is estimated that 1.1 million Jews alone, not um, also um, contributing to the account of Romans and other nationalities that would have been involved in it, but 1.1 million Jews would have um, died. It's going to culminate in a five-month battle at the end. Uh, Nero commits suicide. There's a struggle for power in Rome. Eventually, Vespasian, who had led the initial war, um, will take power in the seat of the throne of Rome. He'll send Titus back in to take and seize Jerusalem and the, and the Temple Mount. Um, it'll last for five, for five months. They'll totally surround the nation or the nation of Israel that is locked in the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem. And it'll be five of the most gruesome months that you'll ever read of if you ever take time. And I disputed whether to talk about it some. And I think I'm not going to for the little one's ears. Um, all, that, all that was prophesied in, in Luke chap, or Leviticus chapter number 26. Even um, infantile cannibalism um, from a mother. Um, was performed, um, but it wasn't just Rome. It was Jew. It was Jew. It was Judaism itself. Part of the reason that they suffered so greatly was because during that period, as well, there was hostility among the Jews. Factions were created. Three primary ones, and the famines that happened in the land of the nation um, in Jerusalem happened because they began to, to to fight one another and burn one another's stores and steal one another's food. So when Rome gathers around and circumvents. Um, Jerusalem in those last five months, um, they, be, they, they, they fall to eating um, Josephus' accounts, uh, leather and hay, and even their own children. If you read Leviticus chapter 26, there's a prophecy that they would eat the flesh of their sons and eat the flesh of their daughters, and Josephus accounts for that in his book six and the War of the Jews in chapter number three, if you want to go and read about it. It was so disgusting, even to the Romans when they walked into a house and that happened, that they ran out vomiting um, because of what they had seen and what they had heard. And it still remains a story um, even to this day. Finally, they would take the Temple Mount, um, burn the entirety of it, um, although Titus didn't want to. Vespasian didn't want to. This prophecy was fulfilled by God, according to Christ's prophecy, but it wasn't according to Rome. They wanted to preserve the temple. They wanted to preserve the mount. It was one of the known wonders of the world. It would have been a great treasure to Rome. 
But after three and a half years and particularly five months of the Roman soldiers just battling back and forth and and thousands upon thousands dying and going without food, Josephus recounts that their fury was so great that they would not even bow to their, their passions to Rome. Nero had no authority over them. Vespasian could not direct them and control them. Titus with the with the uh, charge of death upon disobedience could not contain them as they broke through the temple mount and seized the temple to set it on fire and take treasures for themselves and slay everyone that was before them. Um, and Josephus says that this was the greatest battle um, that the world has ever seen. I think this is what he's talking about here. And the things that precede it, um, uniquely in that time preceded um, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's what they're asking. When will these things be? When will the stones be thrown down? You see the temple, when will it be? And now they, that's what they ask in verse number 4. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, and these are the things that must happen before. As hostility arises in response to Christ and Christianity during that time prior to 70 AD and post-ascension, hostility grows between Judaism and Rome, between Judaism and Christianity, between Christianity and Rome. And what you see is a drastic increase in all of these things. And these aren't just wild men with mental issues or, 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 or you know, in the beginning. These are the things that are going to happen. Jesus begins with their question, though. It's interesting. They ask, when will these things be? And Jesus starts to answer the question um, by saying, these are the things not to look for in some sense. Right? He says, take heed that no one deceives you. Um, I know that these are typical signs of the times that everyone references and are looking for at the end of the age, but Jesus, in some sense, explicitly says that these are not the things to look for. These are things, not signs, but things that must happen before the end. And when they occur, know that it is the beginning of the end, but not the end, he says, so be not deceived. Why? Because the implication is is that they are privy to be deceived. So as hostility arises among all of these factions within Jerusalem, uh, within Judaism, but also within Rome and Christianity, there's going to be a drastic increase in these things. When these things happen, don't necessarily think that it's the end, but these things must precede before the end. What things? First of all, false messiahs. False messiahs. For many will come in my name, in verse 6, saying, I am he and will deceive many. But there will be a drastic increase in false messiahs. Um, one Jewish theologian, Abba Hillel Silver, um, after extensive research, says the first century, especially the generation before the destruction of the temple, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. This is to be attributed, he says, to, uh, as we shall see, not an intensification of Roman persecution. So it's not because Rome persecuted, but to the prevalent belief induced by the proper chronology of that day that the age was on the threshold of the millennium. That he's arguing that it was popular during that period of time to believe that, that, that the Messiah would come. Part of that was probably um, uh, induced by Christ and, and his 
self-proclamation of Messiahship and this birth of Christianity, but there was just this overwhelming, he argues, sense in history of a, a proliferation of men who would come and argue that they are the Messiah. And I don't have time, but I have other quotes from other Jewish scholars with no Christian uh, propagation at all, as well as Josephus that argued that there, there would be... Uh, he, Josephus says another body of wicked men also sprung up during that time. Cleaner in their hands, but more wicked in their intentions, who destroyed the peace of the city no less than did these murderers. These false messiahs would come up. But this isn't just... From Josephus, and this isn't just from um, Jewish theologians. We know this in the New Testament. Um, Josephus told of a man by the name of Thutis, 12 years old after the death of Christ, who claimed to be a great prophet and deceived a great multitude into believing he could divide the river Jordan of their passage. Um, Acts 5.36 actually refers to Thutis. It says, Before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400-fold, joined themselves who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. Eusebius records it as well, that Thutis was a false messiah um, that we see immediately after Christ's ascension in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5 and verse number 37, Gamaliel told of a, a man that rode up after, rose up after Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away many people after him, but he also perished. And all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Acts chapter number 8, verses 9 and 10 speak of a certain man named Simon, which was before his time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Irenaeus in the early church says, Simon Magus is who he's talking about in Acts 8, um, set himself to contend against the apostles that he might also appear glorious. For he, for was his magic honored by the state, by Claudius Caesar, he was glorified by many as God. Acts chapter 21 and verse 28 speaks of an Egyptian. Paul's having an argument there with the authorities. And, um, um, and Paul asked him, do you speak Greek? And, and uh, just through the interaction in Acts uh, 30, 21, 37, uh, you read this, Then Paul was about to be led into the barracks. He said to the commander, May I speak to you? And he replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the, and then this is what the Roman authority, authority says, Are you not the Egyptian whom some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led about 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Um, Eusebius records that this man collected over about 20,000 men and led them into the country of the Mount of Olives, forced entry into Jerusalem to overwhelm a garrison, seize supreme power, but they were met with opposition and died according to Rome. And we could go on and on and on that this was a unique period of time in Jewish history as well as in human history in which Messiah after Messiah after Messiah rose up not just within the world and other pagan religions saying that I am God, but within Judaism particularly, within the nation of Israel and under old covenant provision um, opened up and stated that I am the one that prophesied of old. And one Jewish theologian records no less than 16 during that time of A.D. 33 and A.D. 70, and there were probably more. Not only that, would you see false prophets. False prophets. Mark doesn't rec record this one, but Matthew does. In Matthew 24, 11, he says, Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. Now these aren't necessarily men who claim to be the Messiah, but these are men who stand up and claim to speak for God. 
Throughout history, these are not uncommon. You see in the Old Testament, um, some of those men, but you don't see a lot. And the one reason that you probably don't see a lot under the Old Covenant um, is particularly because the Old Covenant had a provision for uh, false prophets. Um, under Deuteronomical law, um, if a false prophet got one prophecy wrong, they would be put to death. It kind of guarded against crazy false prophets. But it was during this time, particularly as lawlessness began to abound, um, that men would step outside of the bounds of the Old Covenant law, just like they did in the Old Covenant, and they would begin to speak on behalf of God. And the danger of this is, is that men would follow. If you read Jeremiah, what do you read? You read just an abundance of false prophets raising up, rising up in the midst of lawlessness. Jeremiah is preaching, repent, repent, repent. And what do they do? They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's exactly what happens during this period of time and contributes to Jerusalem's fall. Josephus writes, a false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day, talking about the destruction, that God commanded them to get up on the temple and that they should receive miraculous signs of deliverance. Now there was then a great number of false prophets persuaded by the tyrants to impose upon the people. This is what they're saying, that Rome talks some men into being false prophets so that they could dissuade the people, who denounced this to them that they should, not, that they, that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting, that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by the deceivers as such as belied or contradicted God himself. This is what Josephus writes. While they did not offend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation, but like men infatuated without their eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God made to them. This is the argument. If you didn't catch that, this is the argument that Josephus is making. That these prophets stood up and preached peace, peace when there was no peace, even though God's word contradicted it. And, he, and they, they convinced them to stand upon the temple and to defend and to stay and that God would deliver them, leading them to their own destruction when they should have known and understood the prophecies of the old covenant and the promises that he made on coming destruction. The point is, is that the prophets, false prophets are often, and you remember that in Timothy, right? Paul writes that they will heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears. What happens when that happens? Men are led to their own destruction. This was a unique time in which false prophets were, were proliferated because of the lawlessness of the time within Jerusalem. See, when Rome it ends up getting pushed out, they don't go back to Old Testament law. There's, there's not a real um, solidarity to the law that was invoked within the nation of Jerusalem now that their own, their own people again for that three and a half years. So if factions begin to divide the, 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 the city into three different parts and, and they're killing one another and there's a lawlessness that abounds and it's a perfect time for false prophets to rise up and to deceive many and to contribute even to that destruction, arguing peace, peace when there is no peace and that God will save you. Why? Because you are of Abraham's seed. That's the idea. And you see that. You see that all throughout it. Not only that, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and nations will rise up against nations. And you might think there's always been wars, man. You know, that's what we think. 
There's always been nations rising against nations. But, but uniquely, if you'll study this period of time, you'll find that, that the world was under uh, a sense of peace that was accomplished by Rome. It was the time of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was a peace treaty that, was, that, that solidified um, the, 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 the absence of wars and rumors of wars um, throughout the entire Roman Empire. Why? Because if one came up, Rome would come and subdue it. So during this time, Eusebius, uh, who is a Christian historian, Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, um, uh, Josephus, who is a Jewish and Roman historian, all recount of the uniqueness of this time and period in which peace was secured. Not true peace, of course. It was, it was like Soviet Union peace. You know, tyrannical power that subdued any wars and rumors of wars. And what you find is, is, is that as the time approached um, was just this... this um, culmination of and, and this progressive growing crescendo of wars and rumors of wars preceding um, 70 AD. Um, Josephus recounts 150 pages of this. If you just love tantalizing reading, I encourage you to go and read that. Um, these, listen to these historical numbers. In AD 40, there was a disturbance at Mesopotamia, which Josephus calls, um, says caused the death of 50,000 people. 49, there was the death at Passover of 10 to 20,000 people. Um, in Caesarea, uh, there was 20,000 Jewish people killed. At uh, the war in uh, with Syria, 20,000 were killed. At Scythopolis, 13,000 Jews were killed. Thousands were killed in other places. Uh, 50,000 in Alexandria. At Damascus, 10,000 is recorded so slaughtered in one hour. In Cathopolis, 13,000 in one night. In the siege of Jupata, uh, more than 40,000 people were killed just a few years before 70 AD. Not only that, but the world was falling apart. Nero committed suicide and wars were breaking out all throughout Rome. In Germany, uh, Alacrium, Syria, Italy, Gaul, uh, Spain, wars were breaking out everywhere. Not only that, rumors of wars. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, um, there's one instance in which the emperor Caligula ordered his statue to be placed in the center of Jerusalem. The Jews persisted in resisting him during that time, but there was so much fear that a war was going to break out that the Jews neglected to sow their crops because they were so worried. That wars were coming and rumors of wars such that it affected the people. And that's exactly why Jesus in this passage says... Nations will rise against nations, earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And in Matthew's account, he says, be not troubled. Be not troubled. Don't worry. You know, these things must come to pass. I don't have time, but famines. You read in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. You read in history um, in A.D. 44, devastating Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. You read about widespread famine that I talked to you about in the nation of, of or in the city of Jerusalem during the three and a half year war, um, in which many people, thousands of people died. Listen, this isn't a supply chain issue, guys, where we can't get our favorite foods at Walmart. Like people died when they didn't sow the crops. People died when pestilences came. People died when they couldn't um, feed their families. When Whenever, whenever famines and pestilences came, earthquakes in diverse places. Again, we don't have time. But there was a proliferation of earthquakes all over the place. It began with Jesus. At his death, there was an earthquake. Jesus, at his resurrection, there was an earthquake. There was earthquakes in Crete, Smyrna, Miletus, Chios, Asmus, Rome, Apamea, Laodicea, and so forth, all over the Roman map. 
In 67 AD, in the middle of the war with the Jews, Jerusalem experienced one that killed thousands. There was a growing, um, this crescendo of world events as well as local events that would lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says, and these are the beginning of sorrows. This is the beginning. This is not the end. This is the beginning. It's, 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 it's the idea of a woman giving birth. And most of you know what that's like. That it begins with these sharp pains, these birth pains, these contraptions. But, but know that that's not the labor. That's not the great tribulation. That's not the great labor. But at the same time, don't worry. You know that it's coming and that it's going to be great, that there's going to be suffering, that there's going to be pain, but also know that, that you will be delivered. You'll be delivered. It's the idea of a delivery. And this is the argument that I made two weeks ago, and this is the argument that I will make today. If this was the formal um, destruction of the old covenant. Hebrews chapter number eight says that these things are becoming obsolete. They are passing away. They've not passed away yet, but they will. When did it formally pass away in the destruction of the temple? Now no longer can the old covenant functionally, practically carry on. But, 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 but in this judgment, there's a great um, idea of salvation that we'll see as well. That salvation is going to come to those who, who, who trust in Him. That, that there's this delivery, this, 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 this idea of a new covenant coming fully and formally in Christ. And that salvation would even come to the Gentiles as a result of it. So watch out for yourselves. For they'll deliver you. And then you see not only earthquakes, famines, all this. You'll see persecution arise. Greatly. Persecution will arise. Um, verse number nine, watch out for yourselves. They'll deliver you up to councils. You'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before the rulers for the king, for the, my sake, for a testimony to them. Our Lord's word in light of their prophetic curiosity is this. You're going to be persecuted. It's going to become great. It's going to become almost unbearable. They'll deliver you up is what he says. Know that prior to that coming, they will deliver you up to who? To councils. What are the councils? Mark 13, 9 says um, that, that, that a specific term there. It's a term that means Jewish councils or synagogues. Actually, Luke says that you will be persecuted in the synagogues. If the Jews would regard the apostles as religious heretics and subdue them to martyrdom, we know that this happened. And it happened in greatest portion following the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. The book of Acts is full of it. We know that Jesus prophesied this in John 15, in John 16, and in John 17. We know that they would be beaten and they would be flogged is what Mark records. That they would be scourged. That they would be beaten. That flesh would be ripped from their bodies and even some of them would be delivered unto death. And you don't need history to tell you that. Just read your Bibles. Acts chapter number 4. Peter and John are arrested, beaten, and released. Acts chapter number 5, they're arrested again. And delivered. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned to death because of a scathing sermon that he gives to the Jewish people. Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus is catching Christians and binding them. And why? Because they belong to the way or to Christ. Not only will there be um, religious persecution, there'll be civil persecution. Mark chapter 13 and verse number 9, you'll be brought before rulers and kings. Roman authorities as well as other civil governments that Christians would find themselves in, would find them um, unpatriotic or lawless because they would not ascribe ultimate allegiance to Rome. 
or allegiance to Caesar. In the beginning, Herod would, sit, would, would um, seize James and have him killed in Acts chapter number 12. Paul would stand before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, and all would hear the testimony of that great apostle. Under Nero, Philip Schaff, the historian, writes, a vast multitude of Christians were put to death in the most shocking manner. Again, under Nero, prior to the death and the destruction of Jerusalem. Some were crucified, he said, probably in mockery or a punishment of Christ. Some sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and exposed to the voracity of mad dogs in the arena. The satanic tragedy reached its climax at night in the imperial gardens on the slope of the Vatican. Christian men and women covered with pitch or resin and nailed to the post of pine were lighted and burned as torches for the amusement of the mob, while Nero in fantastical dress figured in horse race and displayed his art as a charioteer. Burning alive was the ordinary punishment of incendiaries, but only the cruel ingenuity of this imperial posture under the inspiration of the devil could invent such horrible system of illumination. That, guys, know that the end is coming. Know that when these things happen, know, but know before that that you will go before kings and you will be put to death. You will be persecuted. You will be beaten. You will be flogged. That's exactly what we see in just utter um, form. Not only that, there'll be ecclesiastical persecution. Mark doesn't explicitly record it, but in Matthew 24, verse 10, he says, many will be offended or fall away and will betray one another and will hate one another. There's going to be a great falling away. You say, well, that didn't happen. That hasn't happened yet. Paul thought it happened. 2 Timothy 4, Tim, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark, he says. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You must also beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my defense, no one has stood with me, but all forsook. First Timothy 1, 18 and 20, he charges him to stay faithful. Why? Because men like Hymenaeus and, and Alexander, um, whom, whom they delivered over to Satan, was at large. First John 2, 19 speaks that, speaks that they went out from us because they were not of us. Hebrews chapter 10, 24, don't forsake the assembling of, um, of, uh, don't, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together um, as the manner of some has or is. That there was a great portion of God's people who had abandoned God's people um, while they were out there in the fight. They betrayed one another. They hated one another as persecution came. Matthew chapter 13 records that when persecution arises, what happens to those who are not of um, faithful seed? They turn and they run. And many times when they do that, they throw others under the bus. Roman historian Tacitus reports that under Nero, they started arresting Christians during that time under Nero's rule. But then he makes the point that the reason that they knew where the Christians were was simply because the Christians they arrested told them where the other Christians were to save their own lives. And this isn't just unique to that day. I heard the story just a few days ago of a, of a man who went over to Latvia, met a Latvian a, a lady. She was 80 years old. Um, and this little lady was was 14 year old. He asked her how she became a Christian. She said, when I was 14 years old, I became a Christian. Um, and then she went on to say that my father, I told my brother and my mother, and um, my father and my brother beat me half to death mercilessly. When I would not recant, they sold me to authorities. And I ended up for 14 years in a camp as a slave. I continually be raped and being beaten and being brutalized. 
Um, why? So that the father and the brother could get better jobs in the, in the, in the civil government. He looked at her and he said, was God faithful to you through that? And she said, God was faithful. I woke up every morning with mercies fresh and new. And at 80 years old, she had a smile from face to face. That this was then, and this is now, friends. That there is a sense in which this has come to pass, but there is a sense in which, and this is the lot for Christians, isn't it? You know, this is the life in which we lead. That yes, there may have been wars and rumors of wars and it culminated in, in Old Testament disobedience and in covenant breaking and God manifested His presence in a day of the Lord. I think that represents a greater day of the Lord that will come and when we look at that, it should push us on to faithful obedience and it should push us on to persevere and that's why He ends it like the way that He does for us to for them to persevere and for us to endure to the end and to persevere. Why? Because when the world's falling apart and, and things are going awry all around us and whenever we we can't even um, stay and toe the line with the people of God. We'll be forsaken and we'll be left aside that we are called to persevere and that we are called to endure. That's the idea. Why? Mark 13, 9, for my sake, for my sake is what he says, for a testimony to them. He says that in fact that the persecution of the body of Christ takes place so intricately woven with the head of the body that in Acts chapter number 9 and verse 4, that when Christ, um, when Christ rebukes the apostle Paul for persecuting the church, he looks at Paul and he says, why, Paul, do you persecute me? That that's the idea, that this needs to be noted. That these persecutions are taking place not for themselves or not because they're obnoxious or not just simply because they're obstinate, rebellious people um, to the civil government, but because of Christ. That Christ has so invaded their heart and so invaded their life that they live not lawless, but, but according to a higher law, to the law of God that whenever Caesar comes and says, grant total allegiance to me, they appear lawless to civil governments. They appear lawless to Judaism because they will not bow to um, the, the, the rabbinic ideal of who God is. Thus seeming lawless to the people, they are persecuted and put to death until they will recant. And if they won't recant, death is ultimately the option. That this is the lot for Christians. This was the lot of the New Testament Christians. And this is our lot, isn't it? That the purpose in Mark 13, 9 was to be a testimony to them. That it is our willingness to suffer and die for the truth. That is one of the most powerful witnesses to the reality of truth. It is the truth. It is through the suffering church the sufferings of Christ for sinners has been declared and proclaimed throughout all the world. You know, it was a time of severe persecution in those days. And yet the gospel was proclaimed, I'm going to argue throughout the whole world. That all that, and I know what you're thinking, you're thinking, how's he going to deal with that one? You know, that the nations will be, that the, 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 the gospel will be preached to the nations. It was, it was. It was. Paul records that in Colossians chapter number one in two places. Paul records that in Romans chapter number one. He records it in Romans chapter number 10. And he records it in Romans chapter number 16. And I'll give you all that next week because there's just not time. But it is through the faithful proclamation of the gospel and the suffering saints 
That the gospel is faithfully proclaimed with power throughout the nation such that the Gentiles and the nations would come to faith in Christ. That you who are faithful, you who desire to honor Caesar, who you who pay your taxes, you who pray for Caesar day in and day out and pray for the religious zealots who, 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 who persecute you, um, that, that, that you will be hated and despised and demoralized and targeted as a lawless enemies of the state. And that was our heritage and that is our heritage today. Tertullian, an early church father, says, he goes on and in um, opposition to an authority. He goes on to those who would argue against the Christian faith and advocate their persecution to annihilation. And he says this, talking of Christians, we are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You praise those who have endured pain and death as long as they are not Christians. Your cruelties merely prove our innocence of the crimes you charge against us. When you chose recently to turn a Christian girl over to a brothel keeper rather than to the lions, you showed that you knew that we counted chastity chastity greater than life. But you frustrate your purpose because because those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men that you revere, not like the criminals and the slaves. And when they find out that we die like we do, they join us. That this is the lot for God's people. That the necessity and priority of universal proclamation comes to the people of God. And with that comes great, great persecution. And it was that persecution that that, that propagated the gospel going forth even into the nations. This is what Christ prophesied of us, that that if they hated me, they would hate you. Galatians 6.17. Paul says there, as he speaks about the stigmata, the marks upon his body, that when they look and when they see him, if anyone wants to question his allegiance, then all they need to do is look at the stigmata, the brand marks of Jesus Christ in his body. That, that, that in former days, in New Testament times, as a slave was taken, they would be branded with the, with the brand of the owner as they became a slave. So everyone would look and know in whom they belonged to. Paul says that if anyone wants to question my allegiance, then look at the body, look at the brand marks, look at the lashes possibly, look at the, look at the, look at the flogging, look at the, uh, the, the times that I've been stoned. Let them look and know that I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing this for gain. I'm not doing this for prosperity. I'm not doing this for prestige. I'm doing this because Jesus Christ died, rose again, sits at the right hand of God the Father, rules and reigns over heaven and earth, and every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you want to see the, 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 the privilege and you want to see the reward of those who take the name of Christ then look at the marks. You know, that this is what Christianity is. That he was beat five times, saved 39 stripes. He was stoned. He was left dead, uh, left half dead and shipwrecked on multiple occasions. That this was their lot. And this is ours, isn't it? And I think we'll have to stop there today. That there's much more to be said. 
But the argument is, is that the great coming judgment, the question that was being asked was, was particularly to that generation. The woes were coming upon that generation, but that Christians were to live in that generation in a particular way. What's the ethical implications? Don't be worried. Take heed that no one deceive you. Listen to God's word and preach the gospel and suffer for his name's sake. Suffer even when he goes on to say, brother will betray brother and father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. That, 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 and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the idea. That persecution is coming and has came. Are you ready? Are you ready? You say, I'm ready. If that's the case, you might not be, you know? The text goes on to say that, you, you know what makes a martyr a martyr in the day that he's martyred? It's not a persecution plan. It's not having things all ironed out. It's not a resolve. It's not a toughness to be a real man. It's not thinking about it beforehand. It's simply the grace of Christ in a time of need. Mark 13, 11, he says, but when they arrest you and they deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Luke 21, 12 through 15 um, says something very similar. This isn't a promise to lazy preachers or to jettison preparation or to study your Bibles and think God will just fill your mouth, but it is the grace of God that is extended to saints who live out the purposes of God day in and day out that when they get there, and if Christ demands it, that Christ will meet them while they're there. That those who continually lean upon Christ day in and day out, who know the fellowship of God and how to run to Him um, every day will be able to run to Him in that day. You may wonder, if it were to happen to me, I'm not sure that I would know what to do, but know this, that in that day, if you're suffering for Christ's sake and leaning wholly upon God, trust me, you will know what to do. You will know who to live, how to live. You will know how to stand. And Christian history is the same, friends. That this was true of the apostles, but this has been true, whether it was Polycarp before the emperor, John Knox before the queen, a tinker before the magistrate. Christian heritage has been one that has been riddled with spirit-wrought eloquence of men and women when taken to the stake to be burned, to the gallows to be hanged. They were faithful to God, not because they were great men or great women or because they had a worldly resolve, but because they served a great God who met them in that time of need, in their weakness, and they found strength to hold the line to keep the faith, and to suffer for His name's sake. They weren't men who desired to, desire, to, to just um, to, to die a gruesome death or to, 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 to live gloriously. They just wanted to honor Christ, and, and Christ met them there. And this was the lot for almost all of the New Testament apostles who died in Rome under Nero and who died in places and, and, under, uh, and, and on crosses um, for upward and upside down and, and in the gallows and burned to, to the stakes. And you say, man, that's glorious. It is. And you look around and, you know, you wonder, don't you? Maybe the problem with us today is we've not been persecuted enough. Comfort and ease is somewhat 
Um, I think I was talking about it just the other day with someone has just cultivated weak men who won't stand for much of anything, that it is our own destruction, the prosperity of our lives. That this is the lot for God's people. This is how the gospel goes forth to the nations. As men carry it upon their lips with the brands upon their body. And it may not come physically and it may not come materially. It may come in a number of other forms. I'm not saying that we all have to die for Christ's sake. There are times in which prosperity arises and God breaks in and the revival happens and, and, and God works in, in unique ways. But the vast majority of history will be riddled with the persecution of God's people. And I need to say that for Christ's sake. I need to say that again for Christ's sake. Because I think there's a lot of people today that think they're persecuted because they're defending things like liberty and they're not doing it for Christ's sake. Let me tell you this, and I, I may rub a few people the wrong way here, but the battle for liberty, for liberty's sake, is idolatry. Jesus didn't die so that you could live a life in liberty so however you desired. Jesus Christ died so that you would have the liberty and freedom to serve and honor Him. So if you're going to fight and die, and make certain stands in the workplace or at home or in the community or in this nation, then you do it. And you do it for Christ's sake. Otherwise, it'll perish with wood, hay, and stubble on that great day when Christ returns or you stand before Him. That the only worthy reason for fighting and for dying and receiving persecution is for Christ's sake. Otherwise, Peter argues that to... Um, suffer for evil's sake is wrong. Don't just think because you're persecuted and you're suffering that it's going to have an eternal weight of glory. The thing that uniquely made them different in Mark and will make you different in the 21st century will be the fact that you stand, that you stand for something, you stand with resolve, and that thing is Christ. And you're willing to, to lay aside anything and everything that, that, that he may require, that his allegiance, that your allegiance to him may be made known. That we have for us. You say, well, uh, what if these things aren't future? How do they appeal to us? Well, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things were given to us for our example. Follow these men's example. Love Christ in your homes, men. Love Christ in your workplace, men. Work, love Christ in your community, men. Uphold him. You know, they say, I don't have much. I don't have much influence. I don't have this. I don't have that. No, but you have Christ and you have every ability and the lack thereof to stand and to live and to be a different man, to live a different life anywhere and everywhere. Thus that men know that your allegiance is not to them or not to him, but it is to Christ. That is who we are to be. That's what we learn from this. He said, I look around and I see the world going to hell in a handbasket and, and earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars. That may very well be. Don't be afraid. These things must come to pass. Don't be concerned. Don't be worried. This is your lot. You know, there's a great falling away. There's persecution happening. There's, 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 there's heretics that are on the rise. Like, don't, don't worry. Christ is God. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And you go and you serve and you honor Him in the midst of persecution with a smile on your face. This isn't a bad thing, beloved. I'm not arguing for us to go out there and begrudgedly suffer and be persecuted. I'm arguing, I'm not arguing for us to go out and be obnoxious and, and obstinate and try to make wars, you know, with people. 
and to, to try to be different and say this is the type of people we're supposed to be. I'm simply arguing that Christ, when he's wrought in your heart with the new spirit, um, it cultivates things in you that are otherworldly. And when those things are displayed with a smile on your face and spirit wrought, that those things rub against the nature of the world and they will hate you for it. And when they ask you to do certain things that rub against your conscience or go against God's law, they will look at you and look at you as a lawless people who don't worship their God or who won't bow down to Caesar. And it's because you have a higher law. And you submit insofar as you can, but when you can't, you toe the line and you be faithful to Christ and you uphold the law of God with love. And you become persecuted. You forfeit your jobs. You hang on the stake or in the gallows and you do it with a smile on your face knowing that Christ is sovereign and He will care as long as I'm doing it for His name's sake. So men, when you stand in opposition to this world because it's coming, if it's not already here, I must ask you the question, who do you stand for? Are you fighting for liberty for liberty's sake? Or are you fighting for the freedom to serve and honor Christ? Because He's the worthy King. And they cannot subject you to a foreign law other than the law that you know that's written upon your heart and in God's word. Because that's the only life worth fighting for. And that's the only life worth dying for. And I'm afraid that many of us are not. You know? Let us serve and honor Christ. Let us follow in their example. Let us not be worried. Let us not be concerned. Let us not be surprised. Let us serve and honor Christ with all that we are and all that we have. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to call upon the name of Christ. Father, we thank you for the word of God and the example that is laid before us. Father, we talked about some deep things. We talked about some hard things. But they're only hard, it seems, when we cling to the world. There's been some days it's just been so easy to lay down the sins of life, the pleasures of life for you. God, would you make your presence so known? Would we rejoice in you, Father, and find our joy in Christ such that when we buy the pearl, we're willing to sell everything that we have to buy the field just to get the treasure that's in it. Father, may we just find so much joy in Christ that whenever it is laid upon us to sacrifice, it doesn't seem like a sacrifice at all. May we be proud of our scars insofar as they recognize and acknowledge our allegiance to Christ. Help us not fight for common grace, simply for common grace sake. But help us recognize that every environment that we have in this world is a platform and an environment in which to serve and honor Christ. Jesus Christ died that I may live unto him. And that is worth fighting for. And that is worth dying for. That his name would be wrought throughout all the ages. And Lord, if my life and my death can mean that his name would be proclaimed to unreached people groups across the lands before pagans, that they may come to Christ and submit allegiance to you. And Lord, I would have, I would have led a meaningful life. 
Father, give us the resolve. Give us the vision. Give us the, the help and aid that's needed, Father, the grace in those days and hours to know what to fight for and what not. Lord, we need you in this because I don't know that on many days I know what's quite worth fighting for. I need to know where the line is and when to draw it and what to fight for. So God, would you give us wisdom and discernment as men and women, as families in our coming age, Father, to know. God, when this time has come, would you extend the grace that's needed? Would you help us to wholly lean on you in the midst of it? Father, we need you again just to clarify these things in our life because our hearts are muddled, weary, downtrodden, and on many days, faint. So strengthen us, embolden us, and give us clarity, Father, in how to move forward. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.